Well, we are coming to a time in our service where we take a significant portion of time to study God's Word, and we emphasize that here at CCPC. The Word of God is powerful, like a two-edged sword dividing bone and marrow. It cuts deeply into our heart by the grace of the Holy Spirit, and so we come to God's Word today to be changed, to be transformed. We're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 1. We're working through uh, Philippians. Uh, We are in verse 18b, right? At 18b and then to the end of the chapter. These are some of the... If we want to know Paul's heart, this is it right here. We get Paul's heart as an apostle. His heartbeat, what motivates him, what moves him. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. And I just want to remind you that we've been noticing here in his letter to the Philippian church that it's a friendship letter. He has full uh, affection and love for the Philippians. Um, We also looked at how he was in chains for the gospel. He is rejoicing in his chains because he knows that God is using that for the proclamation of the gospel, despite the fact uh, that he is imprisoned. In fact, God is using it even more and more to embolden others to preach. Some even preaching out a rivalry, Jesus, but Paul doesn't care. He rejoices that Christ's name is going out. Well, in his friendship letter, at this point in uh, the letter, he spends a little bit more time reflecting on his current situation. Uh, So that's what we're going to be looking at here. He's, He's reflecting on, okay, I'm in chains. What does that mean? What is the significance of that? Uh, he, he delves into that. So we're going to look at that, that this afternoon. Uh, we're going to be reading again verses 18b to the end of the chapter. Philippians chapter 1. I uh, encourage you to follow along in your Bibles uh, or on the screens or in the bulletin. Hear God's word. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I'll remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus." because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw and I had, and now hear that I still have. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would open our hearts to receive your word, that you would apply your word to us, that we would live in light of it. By the grace of your Holy Spirit, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What's the meaning of life? That's, that is, I, I think it was, uh, I can't remember the number, but it, you know, in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, he just said 42 or something like that. I don't remember. But this is an age-old question, which has led philosophers to, to make up all sorts of conclusions. What is the meaning of life? For the more atheistic, they often suggest two things, either to declare the meaninglessness of life, Allah, Camus, and others, or to declare that there's nothing beyond the experiences of this world and all the material things of this world, and so you ought to engage it to the, to the fullest. But there's nothing beyond. That's, that's a Christopher Hitchens kind of philosophy, if you will, of the meaning of life. But, but then again, for others, there is a more spiritual aspect to the meaning of life, meaning found in some religious action or religious life, or through some sort of enlightenment, right? Reaching that state of nirvana or something to that effect, or some religious experience that you have. These are all ways to kind of get at this question, what is the meaning of life? For the humanist, meaning is found in progressing in human nature and human, the human race to some sort of ideal state where there's peace and love and, and everything is equal and everything is sort of moving forward. I think the typical American, for them, the meaning of life is something like this. It's working hard in order to get lots of money or accolades and to accumulate stuff and to get prestige, and then therefore live the good life, right? That's, a, that's the sort of American dream version of the meaning of life. But then I think maybe a, a more even contemporary version of the American dream, if you will, or American life, is, or the, the, this idea of finding the meaning of life, is more of a psychological approach, right? It's to find meaning by defining yourself, by self-actualization, by, by sort of coming to that place where your true self is being discovered and put out there, right? That, that's the meaning of life, to find your true self. You be you. In our text this morning, Paul gives us a radically different purpose for life and not just life, mind you. He says, it's not just life, but it's for the afterlife. He says, to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And it's absolutely radical. Paul finds meaning and purpose that does not find its end in himself. Doesn't find its end, its telos, its purpose in himself. But his existence, Paul's existence, is wrapped up in finding his end, his purpose, in another. And not just any other, 
but in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to explore this idea, what it means to say to live is Christ, to die is gain. That, that is such a massive statement. It's Paul's heartbeat, and we have to unpack it. And my hope is that as we do, we might echo Paul as we examine our lives and say, what is, what is the meaning of my life? Why do I live? What is, what is my raison d'etre, my reason to be? What, why do I exist? And my heart, my hope, is that we would cry out, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And we're just going to look at it in two parts. Uh, the first is, to live is Christ. And the second, to die is gain. So that's, that's a pretty easy two-point sermon. Uh, uh, but it's complex. Paul is complex. This is a complex passage, actually. Um, so, but, though, but the simplicity of that is to live as Christ, to die as gain. That's what we're looking at uh, this afternoon. And yes, I keep switching mornings and afternoons. First, to live as Christ. The first thing I want us to think about when we think about this idea of living for Christ or to live as Christ is to think about joy. Remember, I started with this when we started the study of Philippians. Joy is the, is the drumbeat, if you will, of this little letter. He is rejoicing, rejoicing, rejoicing. We see it. He rejoiced in Thanksgiving. He rejoiced in the proclamation of the gospel. And here he's saying he's rejoicing because of this opportunity he has to go before the judge of Rome and to face his execution. Joy is found in living for Christ. That's what we see here. Paul rejoices because he knows that through prayers and the Spirit of Christ, and we'll come back to this, this idea towards the end, this idea of what it means that, uh, that he is uh, strengthened and encouraged by the Spirit of Christ and the prayers of the Philippians. I want to come to that at the end, but I just want us to note that he's rejoicing because he knows that through the prayers of the Philippians and the Spirit of Christ in him, that his imprisonment will turn out for his deliverance. Now, it's an interesting way to phrase it. Uh, here it says, For I know through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ this will end, turn out for my deliverance. And I just want to point out that word, deliverance, is just the word for salvation. The word we, we use sometimes when in theology, we'll say soteriology. That's the study of salvation, but that's the Greek root, soteriology. It's right here, salvation. So he is saying, in essence, this is turning out for my salvation. That's an interesting way to put it. So is Paul talking about salvation in that ultimate sense that he's going to go and be with Christ in glory? He's going to see the fullness of his salvation? That he's going to be vindicated, you know, because he's going before the Roman rulers. He's going to face charges, and he very likely could die. And so here is he saying, I know that this is going to turn out for my vindication, my salvation, that, that no matter what happens... I will be saved. Or is Paul simply talking about salvation in the immediate sense? Am I going to be delivered from Rome? 
Am I going to be vindicated right then and there, and I'm going to, the Lord is going to preserve me, and then I'll have the opportunity to come to you, uh, church in Philippi, and to visit you, because that was his heart's desire? Um, two things, I would say. I think Paul believes he will be saved from the Roman court. In fact, he says this in a few extra, in a few later verses. In verse 25, he says, Convinced of this, I know that I'll remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in faith. So he has a sense, maybe God's Spirit encouraging him, that he is, in fact, not going to face his execution, at least at this moment, and that he'll go and get to, to see the Philippian church. But he is also saying that either way, he will ultimately be saved vindicated through Christ. In other words, Paul rejoices knowing that his life, including the situation that he's in, he's imprisoned, he's about to face his executioners, even in this moment, he knows that whatever happens, it will turn out for his salvation. Elsewhere, he'll talk about, you know, in all circumstances, you know, whatever circumstance he's in, it's an opportunity to see God at work and to see how God saves. So Paul has joy in living now for Christ, no matter what he faces. And I want to come back to this idea of ultimate salvation in a minute when we look at the idea of to die is gain. Because um, we have to ask the question, what does it mean to have gain if we die? Because frankly, I don't want to die. I don't. But here the Apostle Paul seems to say, yeah, I kind of want to die. He says that. We'll come back to that at the end. But I just want to uh, just highlight one thing. For now, I want us to reflect on the idea that we might find joy in our lives in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. And our joy is proportional to how much we see our life wrapped up in Christ. And his purposes for us. Let me say that again. Our joy will be proportional to how much we see our life wrapped up in Christ. Paul here is wrapped up in living for Christ so much so that he's able to rejoice as he faces a trial that could ultimately lead to his execution. It's hard even for us to imagine, to get our minds around Paul seems, in many ways, like a superhuman person. He seems over the top. Like, who of us could be like Paul, right? I think I said last week or the week before that, you know, we rather talk about Peter. Peter's much more relatable. Paul is almost too much for us. How is this possible? But I want to suggest to you that while we may certainly struggle to have perspective in life, that we might not always be filled with visions of Christ and to then have such joy in whatever circumstances that oftentimes we might falter in our faith. I think it is very possible for us to have joy in all circumstances. The question is how, right? How do you do that? <laughs> how do we have joy in all circumstances? Well, first, I just want to note that this is Paul's hope for the Philippian church. This is where he goes with it. He says, later on, he'll say, you know, he'll be talking to the Philippian church, and he'll say, let your, your manner be of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
and he'll be encouraging them and, and exhorting them. And if you go all the way towards the end of his letter, he'll say, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. So the Apostle Paul thinks it's possible. He thinks it's, it's possible. He encourages the Philippian church uh, to that end. But before we look at sort of the details of life wrapped up in joy filled living for Christ, before we look at that idea of what it means to, to find a, to sort of the practical aspects of life uh, with joy, I want to ask, how is this possible? Huh, how can we be like Paul? To live is Christ, to die is gain. But you didn't notice here what Paul says. He says, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul has no delusion of being a super apostle. In fact, his letter to the Romans in chapter 7, he anguishes over his failures, right? He talks about not doing the things that he wants to do, or he should be doing, and doing the things that he doesn't want to do. And he comes to the end of this sort of wrestling, and he just cries out, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And immediately following those words, he says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through Jesus Christ. That's, that, that's the power that Paul has. It's not his own strength. It's not his own power. He's saying, through the prayers of the saints in Philippi, and through the power, the indwelling of the Spirit of Christ, the, the help of the Spirit of Christ, he rejoices. Our ability to find joy and purpose in Christ in our lives in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in does not come by mustering up strength in ourselves. It is through the powerful work of the Spirit of Christ in us. This is fundamental. We, there was an old cartoon when I, in the 90s called Ren and Stimpy. Terrible cartoon. I see, I see somebody laughing. Um, it, it was so silly. But the tagline of it was happy, happy, joy, joy, right? And it was sort of, it was, it was tongue in cheek. It, it was, it was cynical. It wasn't real. I think sometimes we're like that with joy. I know I need to rejoice, so I'm just going to put the smile on. And I'm going to say happy, happy, joy, joy until it comes to pass. And the apostle Paul's not saying that. He's saying, in Christ, by the indwelling of His Spirit, and the prayers of the saints, the encouraging prayers that the saints lift up, it's how we find joy in all circumstances. Isn't that an amazing thing? Yes, the Spirit of Christ helping and encouraging us, but this piece to me is just a wondrous thing. Paul relishes the prayers of his friends in Philippi. Because through those prayers, Christ by the Spirit is bringing about his deliverance, his vindication. Friends, this is an amazing thing. We can rejoice knowing that Christ is in us, strengthening us. And we, we can rejoice knowing that God uses the prayers of his people to bring it about. Paul was not a superman. 
He was a man who was enamored with God, a man who understood that God dwelt with broken sinners. He, he, he understood that he was one who didn't deserve the grace of God. He was a persecutor of Christ. He understood all the love that was being shown to him in Christ, and it overwhelmed him to the point where he could say, I rejoice, whatever comes to pass. I think this changes our perspective when we start to consider not the circumstances, but the Lord and King who rules over those circumstances, the one who by His hand of providence is working all things together for the good of those who love Him. This God who, who takes the brokenness of the world and redeems it. This God. When we start looking at Him in the person of Jesus Christ, it changes us. But when we're looking down at the circumstances, it's usually when we struggle to see. Paul wasn't a superman. He was enamored with God. And so I want to encourage you, first, just to pray for one another. You see the Philippians? Paul relishes their prayers. You know, he was... He was their apostle, he had gone and proclaimed the faith to them. They were young Christians under him. In some ways, you might think, oh, the apostle Paul might have some of the apostles pray for him because, you know, they, they're super spiritual. No, he relishes the prayers of the Philippian church. We all ought to be praying for one another. And prayer is the powerful instrument of God in changing our lives and the lives of one another. Pray for one another. So to live as Christ begins with Christ living in us. To live as Christ begins with Christ living in us. Not the other way around. And there is joy to be found in that reality. But what does this living for Christ look like? Let me get it down into the nuts and bolts here of Paul. What does it look like first for Paul? And what does it look like for the Philippian church? He exhorts them as well. And so I want to look at those two things. I want to see his example of what it looks like to live for Christ, just from this little passage. And then I want us to look very briefly at what he exhorts to uh, the Philippian church. And the, the first thing I want to note is to live for Christ, to live, to say that to live is Christ, means honoring Christ with our lives. Honoring Christ with our lives. Paul says, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. That's his goal, is to honor Christ. Now, to be honest, it's hard to imagine facing such a situation. But of course, Christians throughout History, Christians across the globe face all sorts of persecution for their faith. It just happens to be that here in the United States, we have the privilege and freedom to worship God. What an amazing gift we have here. And yet, across this globe and throughout time, Christians have faced the sword. Uh, I had a professor in seminary. He was uh, a pastor and a professor. His name was Stephen Miller. He was a missionary. Uh, to Eritrea. And so he was a missionary uh, uh, 
and before becoming a professor, obviously, at the seminary, he was in Eritrea, um, sort of in the northeast of Africa. And he was there for some years, he and his family. He had planned to die there, right? He had gone with that old missionary mentality. We're taking the family, we're going, and this is where we're, this is where we're going to spend our life in ministry. And he got there, and he started up this ministry in Eritrea, and it was fruitful, started a little study center. And from that study center, he had people coming to faith. And the people that were in his study center started to go out and, and build the church there in Eritrea. What a glorious thing. But then, in God's providence, the government of Eritrea did not like churches, particularly unregistered churches with the government. And so they shut the ministry down. Not only did they shut it down, but they arrested the group of Christians that were associated with this mission work, and they put him in prison. And before Stephen ended up coming back to the United States, he ended up going to the prison to, to talk to these Christians. And he, he had access. He was able to go in. And what he remarked, what was so remarkable for him when he was there was the joy that they had in prison. Here he was, he had freedom because he was an American citizen. The government wasn't going to do a whole lot to him. They were going to kick him out of the country eventually. But for the most part, he was pretty free. But here are these Eritrean Christians who had given up their life for Christ, who had followed him, risking their life, were rejoicing in prison. And Stephen Miller said, I, I was brought to tears. I don't know what happened to those Christians. Stephen Miller had to come back to the United States. He was kicked out of the country. It's hard for us to imagine those sorts of situations. But I often wonder, for myself, and maybe you've wondered this too, will I shrink back? If, if I was faced with the question, deny Christ, or be imprisoned, or whatever the case may be, even die, would I deny Christ? Have you asked yourself that question? Well, Paul here has an immense confidence. You see these words here, he says, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. How can Paul have such confidence? Paul's confidence is that he will not be ashamed. I just want to note here, sometimes we think of being ashamed as, I feel ashamed. It's like when we do something wrong and we are exposed, we feel a sense of shame. That, I don't think that's a, 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 the, the sense of the word. The, the idea here isn't so much how he feels, but that he would be put to shame. Meaning that shame would be sort of externally placed on him. That he would shrink back from the gospel and that you know, in Romans chapter 8, or not Romans, Mark chapter 8, you know, Jesus says, whoever's ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of them. That's, I think, the kind of language here that Paul is talking about, the, the outward shame. But he says, I have full confidence, full courage. Now as always, Christ will be honored in my body by life or by death. Well, this is easy for Paul, right? The apostle par excellence, 
Again, going back to what I said a few minutes ago, his confidence is based on the presence of the Spirit of Christ and the effectual prayers of God's people. This means two things for the way we are to live for Christ. It means we live with hope and confidence in Christ, not in ourselves, in the fact that the Spirit is present with God's people. We can have confidence knowing that Christ is with us. And secondly, it means that we pray and seek prayer for ourselves as we face various trials. I, it is such an American thing, and it's probably even, maybe to be a little bit gendered here, a little bit of a guy thing to never ask for help for anything. Just kind of do it, do it yourself. Friends, we can't. We're called to to go to one another and share our requests with one another, to pray for one another, to encourage one another, to seek help and mutual benefit from one another. Go. If you have a, something you're facing and you, you don't want to face it alone, go to someone and ask, can you pray for me in this? Can you pray for me? Pray for one another. And honestly, the trials that we face may not be as dramatic as the one here in Philippians or the example that I shared from my professor. Nevertheless, the Spirit is no less present. And so we go out then in confidence and hope that we will not be put to shame, but that in our bodies Christ will be honored. And the key of our confidence is Christ in us, not us. So... Just as an example, prayer might look something like this, or when you ask for prayer, it might look like this. Lord, I'm scared of shrinking back from my confession and my own strength. Lord, I know I will fall. Lord, in this trial, be present with me. Lord, in this trial, may you be honored as I stand firm in the faith. Lord, I know this is only possible through you. Pray those words, something like that. Of course, for Paul, this meant literally that his body uh, was going to be brought to trial, that he might be put to death, and yet he went with full courage. And what did courage look like for Paul? Well, this word courage here carries the nuance of boldness. That's probably a better translation in some way, boldness. Presumably, Paul wasn't going to shrink back at that moment from proclaiming Christ, even before this Roman court. To live as Christ means being spirit-empowered, prayer-strengthened people who seek to honor Christ in all that we do. Let me say that again. Being, to live as Christ means being spirit-empowered, prayer-strengthened people who seek to honor Christ in all that we do. And so we can go out into the world with joy and confidence and encouragement and boldness as we look to Jesus, as we view everything that we do in life as an opportunity to honor Christ, an opportunity to honor Christ and bring glory to his name. But there's a second thing here. Paul also expresses his desire that the Philippian church as well uh, might have this maxim. They, his desire is that he would mimic him in this sense, to live as Christ, 
to die is gain. At the end of the chapter, Paul exhorts the Philippian church by saying, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then Paul opens up these various areas. And in fact, at the end here, in verses 27 to 30, he goes into all the sort of topics that he's going to address throughout the rest of his letter. Lives worthy of Christ means standing firm. It means standing firm in one spirit with one mind. It means striving side by side for the faith. It means not being afraid of those who would oppose you. And it means believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and suffering for the Lord Jesus Christ. To live as Christ means being rooted in Christ, firmly planted on that rock, standing firm, unmovable and unshakable. To live as Christ means being united with your fellow brothers and sisters in the faith, striving together, one with the other, working. It means having that same boldness and confidence without fear that only comes through the grace of the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to live as Christ? It means believing in Jesus, being willing to suffer for him, and in all of that, rejoicing. I opened up considering all the different ways the world seeks meaning in life. All of them, to one extent or another, finds purpose situated in the glory of man. What is different about Christianity is that our aim, while definitely beneficial to us, in the greatest sense that we enjoy the glory of Christ, it's not about us. It's about Jesus. And when we fix our eyes on Christ, when we fix our eyes on Jesus, it does something quite marvelous. When we are looking to Christ and His glory, then in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, we are freed up to love. Because we're not worried about ourselves. We're freed up to lay down our lives in service to Christ. It frees us up to suffer without bitterness, and it frees us up to rejoice in all circumstances. To live as Christ frees us from the, from the empty path of self-glory. But make no mistake, and this is where I want to conclude, there is glory for us. It's not our own glory, mind you. But it is a glory that we get to enjoy for all eternity that we share in with the Lord Jesus Christ in His glory. And I want to close by thinking about what it means to die is gain. Paul goes into a little self-reflection in the middle of this passage as he considers the potential of dying. He says, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose. Now that's a funny way to put it, right, Paul? You're not actually getting to choose between life and death here. In fact, it's getting chosen for you. You, you are just going as sort of led by the, led by the hand. You, are, you have no choice in this matter. What does he mean when he says choose here? It's kind of an odd way to put it. I think he is simply reflecting and thinking about what each of these prospects means. If I had a choice to be with Jesus or to be here in Philippi with you all, I want to be with Jesus. Now, again, don't, don't misread Paul. He is not somebody who is looking for a death wish. He, in fact, presses into life more so. He, he wants to live more so that he can serve 
Christ more in this life. But, but there is part of him that says, for me to die is gain. It's far better to be with Christ. I'm attached to this world. What about you? I'm attached to this world. Paul's words seem foreign to me, especially as a younger man. I think it is. And the younger we are, the, I would say the more attached to the world we are. But I've noticed in older saints that the attachment starts to, to fray. The longing for glory starts to become more palpable, more, more real. When I was in Pittsburgh, I, uh, I went to the hospital to visit an elderly saint who was there. Her name was Elaine. She was over 90 years old. She was a very elderly saint. And I went to her. She was in the hospital. And I went there to, to pray with her, to read scripture with her. She had some major health concerns. You know, a 90-year-old in the hospital, the, the, it's a serious situation. And at the beginning, we talked a bit about her health, but she really wasn't interested in talking about her health. She didn't seem to care. In fact, she had this look in her eye that was kind of like the smile and this look, like, I'm getting ready for glory. I'm getting ready for heaven. And I was struck. There was no complaining, no worries, only joyful expectancy. And I was struck by her faith and her hope. Just this morning, I was trying to remember this story from my professor, Steve Miller. And so, as you know, what you do when you want to remember something, you go to Google. It's like our little memory bank for us. And I searched his name. You know, he was my professor not that long ago. And I found an obituary. It wasn't that old. He was in his late 60s when he died. He had, I guess, soon after I graduated, had been found to have ALS. And so that's a pretty rapidly progressing disease. And, you know, there was lovely obituary there for him. But in there, there was a link. And I clicked on the link, and it went to a blog that he had written during that period of three years or so that he suffered with the disease. And I just happened to be scrolling through all the various blog things, and there was one about dying and the hope that he had. And I was brought to tears. I just found out my professor died. It's a few years back now. But how much hope he had in that glory that was awaiting him to be with Jesus. Elaine and Steve, they understood that to die was gain. To be with Christ was far better. And why is it gain? Don't we love our families and friends here on earth? Don't we have a healthy fear of dying? Not one of us wants to go through that. But for Paul, for Elaine, for Steve, there was something far better that was ahead. And what is it? It is the hope of glory. It is the hope of seeing our Savior, of being with Him, of resting from our earthly trials, of being free of sin and sorrow, of being known by God fully, and of fully resting in Him, free of all the pain that we have. It's hard for us to get our minds around. We're such earthly creatures. 
But lest we lose sight of things, Paul is not so heavenly-minded that he was no earthly good. That's one of those quotes that you'll sometimes hear. In fact, his yearning to be with Christ, his longing to say, that's far better, is what compels him to, to say, I, but I, I, my work here is not done. And to, to move forward with all perseverance as he has hope and love for others. His longing and yearning to be with Christ was the impetus for his love and his desire to be with the Philippians. We hear his words here in 24 out of 26. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. See, he's compelled by his love of Christ to go and love others so much so that he will, if he had the choice, forego it, being with Jesus for the sake of others. His desire to be with Jesus pressed him into ministering to the Philippians so that they might glory in Christ too. Isn't that what we do when we love something? I have been trying for my whole life to get everybody I know in love with fly fishing. It, it falls flat 90% of the time. But because I love it so much, I want everybody to enjoy it with me. I will talk about it with you. I will share it with you. If you ask, I'll show you all my gear. I want you to come and enjoy it. I share that. You guys know how I feel about Maine. It's similar, right? That's what we do when we are enamored with somebody, when we love somebody so much, we want to, to show them forth. We want others to enjoy them too. And so it is for Paul. Longing for heaven ought to move us deeper into love for one another and for the lost. As we contemplate the wonders of Jesus, of his love, as we think about how for Christ to live was for us. And to die was for us. See that? Paul's saying, for me to live is Christ, but Christ came and he lived and he died for you and for me, broken sinners who didn't deserve anything. As we consider this reality that as undeserving sinners caught up in our own glory and making meaning and significance for ourselves outside of God, outside of Christ. Despite the fact that God has made us to be reflections of himself in the world, despite all of this, Christ lived for you and he died for you. What does it mean for you to have a reason for living? What does it look like? What does it, what does it mean for you to say, what, why do I exist? What is your aim? Is it, is it inwardly focused? Is it about your glory? I'll be honest. Our glory's fading, like the flowers of the field. But in Christ, we have a glory that is eternal. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Let's pray.